Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. A couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we used a joke in, in reference to the so-called Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Said there was a new, uh, a new ad being produced by a group called National Guard deserters for truth. <laughs> well, truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. It turns out that there actually is an ad being put out in response to the Swift Boat Veterans Affair. Apparently, Texans for Truth have been established by the 20,000-member Texas online activist group DriveDemocracy.org. They produced a 30-second television advertisement titled AWOL. The ad features Robert Mintz, one of many who served in Alabama's 187th Air National Guard when Bush claims to have been there. Well, let's, uh, let's play that 30-second spot. Let it speak for itself. I heard George Bush get up and say, I served in the 187th Air National Guard in Montgomery, Alabama. Really? You know, that was my unit. And I don't remember seeing you there. So I called friends, you know, did you... Uh, know that George served in our unit? No, I never saw him there. It would be impossible to be unseen in a unit of that size. Texans for Truth is responsible for the content of this advertisement. Yeah, I think that speaks for itself. You noticed, of course, that uh, two weeks ago, George Bush said that uh, that uh, the TV ad that was attacking John Kerry's war record should be stopped, along with all other political ads run by independent groups. He's, of course, referring to ads like uh, uh, those ones that were put out by MoveOn.org, a genuine grassroots group. Apparently, he's willing to give up uh, you know, these Swift Boat people's uh, ads, which were produced by Texas Friends of the Administration. Of course, these gr- this group was also being advised legally by the one of the chief White House counsels. Ah. I didn't want to do too much politics on today's show. We've been doing a lot of that lately. Of course, it is an election year. So let's let's try and set a time limit of five minutes. Five minutes and we'll get off the topic of, uh, of, of electoral politics. We want to answer a caller who on last week's show was uh, pointing out John Kerry's flip-flops. Well, here's some quotes we couldn't quite put our hands on during the show uh, when I was assisted by Steve Valentino last week. But we found him in the meantime. Here's a quote from 413 of this year, April. Bush claims he can win the war on terror. Quote, one of the interesting things people ask me now that we're asking questions is, can you ever win the war on terror? Of course you can. On August 30th of this year, he then said, I don't think you can win the war on terror. Followed followed the next day with, make no mistake about it, we are winning and we will win the war on terror. So there you have it. In the space of a few months, we can win the war on terror. The war on terror is unwinnable, and he personally will win the war on terror. Take your pick. Does that sound like a flip-flop to you? And of course, my favorite, which we pointed out in the show before, September 25th, 2002. 
You can't distinguish between Al-Qaeda and Saddam when you talk about the war on terror. Fast forward to September 17th last year. We've had no evidence that Saddam Hussein was involved in September 11th. I find that rather significant. And uh, yes, we are going to, by the way, resume our Osama count. It is now 1,094 days since Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda attacked America on September 11th, and um, he's still at large. And in the same vein of George Bush saying that he's, he's not really attacking John Kerry's uh, war record or the allegations that he's stopped beating his wife, <laughs> ranking up that was is the White House um, refusing to echo Dick Cheney's warning, which came out last Wednesday, the United States risks another terror attack if voters make the wrong choice on Election Day, which uh, had Scott McClellan backing away from Dick Cheney saying that in, a, in a meeting with reporters on Air Force One, well, there are differences in how the two candidates approach the war on terror, and, and that's what the vice president was talking about in his remarks. And Steve Valentino referred to the Zell Miller remarks at the GOP convention, which I did not catch, but I've had, a time in the, I've had some time in the meanwhile to, to read up on. And I really like this quote that he made to uh, the nation as follows. No pair has been more wrong, more loudly, more often than the two senators from Massachusetts, Ted Kennedy and John Kerry. Together, Kerry and Kennedy have opposed the very weapon system that won the Cold War and that is now winning the war on terror. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, stop. There's a weapon system out there that won the Cold War? A, and that weapon system is now, B, winning the war on terror? Hmm. I was not aware of that. We will make an effort to contact uh, Senator Miller's office in the future and see if we can't clarify what weapon system that is, because I, I frankly, I have to admit, I'm completely unaware of the very existence of such a weapon system. And of course, the great comedy relief of uh, of campaign 2004 is is Alan Keyes' his run for the Senate in Illinois. I think we mentioned in last week's program that the Senate candidate has labeled homosexuality selfish hedonism, and said that Vice President Dick Cheney's lesbian daughter is a sinner. Yes, the former talk show host, who's made two unsuccessful runs for the White House, made those comments in an interview with Sirius OutQ, a satellite radio station that provides programming aimed at gays and lesbians. After saying homosexuality is selfish hedonism, Keyes was asked if that made Mary Cheney a selfish hedonist. Of course she is, Keyes replied. That goes by definition. The Log Cabin Republicans, a gay and lesbian organization, denounced Keyes' remark. And, you know, as much as we may try and use the English language here in America, I think you have to go back to England, back to Mother England in the UK, to find people that really are masters of, of this language of ours. The Economist had some comments on Alan Keyes that I simply must share with you. Just an excerpt from uh, the Lexington column in The Economist. Mr. Keyes' Senate run will produce nothing but disaster. Humiliation for Mr. Keyes more pie in the face of an already pie-covered Illinois Republican Party, and yet another setback for Republican efforts to woo minority voters. The candidate routinely denounces affirmative action as a form of racial discrimination, but what other than racial discrimination can explain the Illinois Republican Party's decision to shortlist two blacks for the Illinois slot? 
and eventually to choose Mr. Keyes. He brings no powerful backers or deep pockets and was thrashed in his two runs for the Senate in Maryland. The Illinois Republicans are not just guilty of tokenism, they are guilty of last-minute scraping the bottom of the barrel tokenism. Mr. Key's opponent is optimistic, where he preaches Sodom and Gomorrah. He's moderate, where Mr. Keyes is intemperate. And Mr. Obama is also a rising national star with unrivaled support from the National Party, while Mr. Keyes is a serial failure. The Republicans' fatal mistake was to think the best way to counter a black man was with another black man. I think I'm going to get out of the campaign, uh, the campaign stuff now. Um, we were going to have Jerry Polikoff talk to us this week about the latest numbers from Zogby and others, but we're going to put that off till next week. It is true that Bush has made some gains um, in the state-by-state -state polling in this country, which is, after all, how we elect presidents. But if you go to Zogby's website, you'll find his analysis of how uh, what is probably something like a 2% overall edge nationwide was magnified into an 11% edge nationwide by both Time and Newsweek. This is wrong, and again, as we've pointed out numerous times in this show, that isn't how we elect presidents anyway. Al Gore had an overall edge of 550,000 votes in 2000, and um, he's retired right now. Let me just say this. If you go state by state, um, you wind up, this is what's amazing, you wind up, if you give every state with any edge to carry, every state with any edge to Bush to the appropriate person, you find both men short of the necessary total. And there are three states currently tied, Florida, Missouri, and Colorado. If we award all those to Bush, and I believe he's going to certainly carry Florida, it winds up 269 to 269 a tie, which would send the election to the House of Representatives, where Tom DeLay would again appoint George Bush president. Of course, um, I guess I can't get out quite that early. Again, The Economist, who's covering the U.S. Uh, political races better than anyone else uh, in any, any domestic um, news magazine, did point out something extremely interesting which has been overlooked by the media, as usual. The August 28th issue in discussing the Colorado vote, and Colorado is one of those states right now that is a dead heat, too close to call, which really is bad news for Bush. In the beginning of the campaign, it was thought to be completely safe for him. In Colorado, voters are deciding on a ballot initiative that would shift the state's votes in Electoral College from a winner-take-all system to a proportional one based on the popular vote. The initiative explicitly says that it applies, quote, retroactively, unquote, to the 2004 election. Which means if the scenario we just painted for you came true and we awarded Colorado to Bush and there was a tie, that ballot initiative would then kick three or four electoral votes to carry and make him president. You can count on one, you can count on the fact there will be legal challenges to that ballot initiative if the entire election then depends on its outcome. We might say again in the Supreme Court by a five to four margin, that law being thrown out. Speaking of polls, the Reuters News Service uh, caught my eye with this one. <laughs> this, is, this is unbelievable. A poll conducted in Germany showed that one in five Germans wants the Berlin Wall rebuilt. Yes, 14 years and a trillion dollars after reunification, one in five Germans would like to see the barrier that split the country during the Cold War put back. 
This was a, a, a survey conducted by the Forsa Company based on interviews with 1,002 former East Germans and 1,005 former West Germans, highlighted a feeling that in the West that the Easterners are ungrateful for the financial support they've received since 1990 and that they should do more to help themselves. I think at this juncture I should interject a little anecdote uh, that was shared with me by um, Stuart Gardner, who's been a frequent contributor to this program, uh, that over in Germany, Stuart was aware of a former East German going to work in a, in a Western German uh, bakery some years ago, I guess back in the 90s. And uh, this guy was delighted at the prospect, was working extremely hard all day long, going, you know, for, for several hours just saying, you know, couldn't, couldn't say enough good things about the job. He was glad to have it, better money than the old socialistic system, uh, you know, a chance to get ahead in life. But by about midday, he was kind of running out of energy and sort of said, so uh, when does the dough run out? And they said, what do you mean? Well, when does the dough run out? Used to the old system of shortages. And uh, the um, management pointed out to him that the dough does not run out. The dough lasts all day long and you keep baking for a full eight hours. (laughs) The guy said, you're kidding and quit. If uh, you've ever visited a socialist country, and at this point, this point in uh, in life, if you haven't made uh, you know a visit to one, you're going to have to go either to North Korea, which lets no one in, or Cuba, which actually we do recommend. But uh, you know the old the old rule in the socialist countries was, as long as they pretend to pay us, we'll pretend to work. All right, other topics, please. All right, uh, we didn't note the passing of a giant. Uh, a sort of an American original, kind of a quirky guy who was famous back in the 1960s. Red Adair passed away um, um, last month. Red Adair was a firefighter. He uh, got a start down in the Texas oil fields when they would burn, which they occasionally would with all of that gas and oil. He learned to put them out and uh, got quite a bit of notoriety back like in 1962. When he uh, got, that's when he got the world's attention. He put out what was called the Devil's Cigarette Lighter. It had been burning for six months out in Algeria. It, uh, this was a, a fire being fueled by 55 million cubic feet of gas every day. The flames were so, uh, so tall that they were easily seen by John Glenn from orbit. Mr. Adair went out and put that one out and became sort of a celebrated figure. They made a movie about him, which John Wayne played Red Adair. And, uh, you know, we would just like to note the passing of... Uh, one of those guys that kind of, you know, makes us the country that we are. Red Adair uh, fought fires for 50 years, dealt with almost 3,000 of them, uh, hardly ever got hurt, and, uh, you know, lived to die of old age. That's, uh, that's an admirable goal. Now, in response to something that I, I think I mentioned on, uh, on last, last week's program, <laughs> news item out of Iraq, Saddam Hussein is now spending his days writing poetry intending to a favorite tree out in one of his yards. And I got to speculating, you know, uh, what kind of poetry must this be? Responding, of course, to this, <laughs> this call, this inquiry by Radio Parallax, was KDVS's own sister program, Dr. Andrews Poetry and Technology Hour. Yes, Dr. Andy Jones <laughs> sent us an email containing some samples of the, uh, the alleged poetry of former dictator Saddam Hussein. This came from a man named Timothy McSweeney, who uh, produced a piece titled Saddam Hussein, Master of the Limerick. 
Now, uh, we, we, got, we want to take pains that we cannot verify the authenticity of these particular limericks attributed to uh, Saddam Hussein. But anyway, here goes. A swain who worked near the Euphrates had quite a smooth way with the ladies. When he tried for a kiss, he would not ever miss. So, I had him dunked in the Tigris until he vomited bile. A Samara cleric persisted in the praising of persons blacklisted. I was left little choice but to limit his voice by having him beaten till senseless. And uh, my particular favorite uh, <laughs> from Saddam Hussein, the alleged master of the limerick, one Abu Ghani Shindala was especially good a cappella at singing the praises of my foes and disgraces, so I had the traitorous Kerr assassinated after he fled the country. All right, that's it for this segment. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and this is... KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.